A voice says, cry, and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all is beauty, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. The epistle reading is written in the second chapter of First Peter beginning at the ninth verse. Hear the word of the Lord. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, But now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Here ends the epistle reading. This is the word of the Lord. We're going to read, uh, let me see, we're going to read from the book of Revelation, the first chapter, verses 4 through 6 in your pew Bible. It's page uh, 1913, the word of the Lord from the first chapter of John's Apocalypse, verses 4 through verse 6. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia... Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us of our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. We have a slide, I believe. Uh, Perhaps you've seen this guy before. In Alice in Wonderland, it's the Cheshire cat who mysteriously appears in the tree at a moment of great confusion for poor Alice. Alice has been running through the forest, going through the woods, and the path forks, and there are now two different paths going in two different directions, and Alice is tearing up in anxiety, and she cries out, Oh, I don't know which path to go down. And the Cheshire cat queries, Well, where are you going? Oh, I don't know. Well, then it doesn't really matter. Where are we going? 
We're beginning this morning a series from John's Apocalypse, this book of Revelation, this last book of the Bible, and we're going to talk about Christ's purpose for the church. If we as a church aren't going anywhere, if your marriage isn't going anywhere, if your family isn't going anywhere, if your personal life isn't going anywhere, then it doesn't matter what you do. Really, any decision you make, you might as well just roll the dice or flip a coin, because if you're not going anywhere, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any, any difference for, for how you actually live your life, for the choices you make, the sacrifices you make, the complex and difficult selections that you make every day, what priorities we set. But if Jesus has set us here as a church, if he set you here as a Christian, if you're a Christian, then where you're going makes all the difference in the world. If he set us here at this time in this place with a purpose, if there's somewhere that he plans to take us, then everything should be driving toward that goal. To understand that goal, that destination becomes paramount. It sets our mission as a church, where we're going, and that's going to drive every decision we make. And it sets your life in order, your mission, your personal mission, where your life is going. Every decision you make, once you know where Jesus wants to take you, that sets everything else in order. Where are you going? It's a question we all have to ask, and it's a question we all have to answer. How do you answer that? If I were to ask everyone in this room to take out a piece of paper, you don't have to do it, I'm just hypothetically, take out a piece of paper, get a pen, and write down in one sentence your personal mission as a human being on this planet. Write down in a sentence or so why you're here, why God made you, why he put you here specifically, and not some generic answer out of the Shorter Catechism or out of a website, but but specifically you, your calling in life, God's call upon you and where he's going to take you, what your purpose is, what your mission is, why are you here? Some of you, you, you're looking at me like you have no clue, you've never thought about it, and you are in the right place Because by the end of this series on Revelation, selections from Revelation, I'm praying that you will have a very clear sense of the call of God on your life. And you're going to know where he's going to take you, where your life is going, the direction of your life. And you're going to understand better our direction as a church, that Jesus has a specific place he wants to take us that's different from a church down the street or a church in a different country or a church in a different part of town. It's an issue of the call of God. What am I doing here, God? What's the point of my life, mine specifically? Father, why did you put me here? Where are you taking me? What do you want from me? Tell me, Lord, I have to know. This drives every decision I will make from this point forward. I want to respond to your calling on my life. Show me, Lord, and I'll follow you. And I'm praying that God shows you and that you will have the courage through Christ to follow him wherever he's going to take you. See, that's the answer that drives everything else. Once you understand where you're going, it drives every decision you make in terms of what the Bible calls zeal. A zealous person, a zealous Christian is a Christian who has one thing in mind, the one thing that they have to have, the one thing that drives them completely. The 19th century Anglican bishop of Liverpool described what he saw when he saw a zealous man. He says this, A zealous man in religion is preeminently a man of one thing. 
It's not enough to say that he's earnest or hearty or uncompromising or thoroughgoing or wholehearted or fervent in spirit. No, he sees one thing and he cares for one thing and he lives for one thing. He's swallowed up in one thing and that one thing is to please God whether he lives or whether he dies, whether he has health or whether he has sickness, whether he's rich or whether he's poor, whether he pleases man or whether he gives offense, whether he is thought wise or whether he's thought foolish, whether he gets the blame or whether he gets the praise, whether he gets the honor or whether he gets the shame. For all of this, a zealous man cares nothing at all. Ryle says he burns for one thing, and that one thing is to please God to advance God's glory. If he's consumed in the very burning, he's content because he feels that like a lamp he is made to burn. And if consumed in the burning, he has but done the work for which God appointed him. Such a one will always find a sphere for his zeal. If he can't preach and work and give money, then he's going to cry and sigh and pray. Yes, if he's only a pauper on a perpetual bed of sickness, he will make the wheels of sin around him drive heavily by continually interceding against it. If he cannot fight in the valley with Joshua, then he'll do the prayer work of Moses, Aaron, and Hur on the hill. If he's cut off from working himself, he will give the Lord no rest until help is raised up from another quarter and the work is done. This, he says, is what I mean when I speak of zeal in religion. Where's your life going? Where are we as a church going? It's the question that even a church needs to answer. And it's, you know, we don't want to be individualistic Americans with just our private relationship with God. God saves us as a people, as his family, as his church, as his, as, as, as his very possession. We have a corporate identity. And, and as his body, as the church, what's our purpose? What's our goal? Where are we going? What's our destination? If you were to take the Metrolink to the newly renamed St. Louis Lambert International Airport and you were to get off at the very last stop, Terminal 1, and you were to go down that weird hallway with a bumpy floor that they've just now made kind of nice and, and you were to walk you know, uh, across that, that great expanse into Minoru Yamasaki's uh, barrel-vaulted, iconic terminal, mid-century modern terminal in all its glory and you were going to walk up to the ticket counter that used to say TWA, and I'm still ticked over that, but now it says American. And you were to go up to the counter and you were to say, I would like to buy a ticket. And the person behind the counter looks at you and says, okay, so um, do you just like being up in the air or is there something in particular that you want to tell me? Uh, What is your destination? Where are you going? Where are we going as a church? What specifically is God's calling on us? That's a big part of what the book of Revelation uh, was written to help Christians understand what is Christ's direction for his church. You know, people misunderstand what this apocalypse, this book of Revelation is. This is not a book that was given to John to warn people thousands or perhaps millions of years in the future what's going to happen in the last seven years before Jesus returns. That's not what this was. 
This is an unveiling, literally. That's what Revelation or Apocalypse means. It's God saying to John, John, you're in the midst of a mess and turmoil, and you have no idea what's going on in this era in which you're living, because Christ is come, and he's not yet come again, and you're trying to figure out what are we supposed to be? Where are we supposed to be going? What are we supposed to be focused on? What's our mission right here, right now? It's unclear to you, and I'm going to say, come up here, and the heavens are going to part like a scroll. And I'm going to bring you up here. And from that vantage point, you're going to be able to look down and see unveiled before you the big picture of what is going on, who you are, and where I'm going to be taking you. This was incredibly relevant for first century Christians. It was written for them, but it was also written for us to unveil for our sake what it is that Jesus is doing in his church, what our purpose is, and where we're going. We look at that, we see that John says we are a kingdom in verse 6. A kingdom means that we have a king. A church that's going nowhere, a life that's going nowhere, is a life, a church that's in open rebellion against its king because a kingdom means that there's a king. He calls the shots. He sets the agenda. We don't come up with that ourselves. He's the one who casts his vision for the church. He's the one who gets us there. And he's the one who does all the working every step of the way. Where are we going? Part of that we see when he calls us priests. To him that loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests. What does it mean to be a priest? To be a priest means that we are fundamentally intercessors for our city. The purpose of God, the direction for your life, His calling upon you as a Christian, if you're a Christian, and upon you as a church, if you are a church. He's saying, I have made you to be priests. This is why I sent my Son This is why he shed his blood. This is why we've set you free from the chains that enslaved you. This is why we've made you now under my kingship as a kingdom in order that you might be priests, in order that you might intercede for the city in which I've placed you. And he's going to talk to seven different cities, which are actual historical churches and historical cities in Asia Minor, what today is Turkey. And we won't get to all of them, but we'll look at some of them. Because every church in every city has this calling to be intercessors. Intercessors through our prayers and intercessors through our lives. An intercessor is a person who intervenes on behalf of another, a go-between, somebody who speaks on behalf of, in this case, St. Louis, to the creator of St. Louis, the Lord over St. Louis, who alone has the power to redeem and set free lives in St. Louis. You look at, uh, you look at uh, the priestly office of Christ. What does it mean that Jesus is our priest? That could be a model for us. Well, it's different from Jesus being a king or Jesus being a prophet. We call him our prophet, priest, and king. What does it mean to be a prophet? A prophet tells you what to do. A prophet declares the truth to you. And interestingly, the Bible doesn't say, and I have called you to be a kingdom of prophets. See, a lot of Christians think that's their job, to tell everybody what to do, to truth them. We've got a message to carry, but he doesn't say, you're prophets. 
you're not the mouthpiece of God. And interestingly, he doesn't say you are kings in that sense. Jesus says king, that means he rules us. King gets to set the agenda. King gets to be in control. God does not say, I've called you and placed you in St. Louis to be a kingdom of kings, controlling everybody, trying to make non-Christians act like Christians, trying to manipulate them, getting on top of them and making them do my will. That's not your job. That's not your identity. But what does it mean that Christ is our priest? To be our priest means that Jesus right now is at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you, appealing for you. As you cry out to him, as you pray in his name, Jesus is making sure that every request and every cry of your heart, every tear streaming down your face, makes it to the face of God the Father and hears it and receives it and responds with his grace. To intercede for St. Louis means that you are committed to praying for St. Louis. Jesus, as our priest, carries our burdens. What will it look like for you to carry the burdens of three million people in St. Louis region? Three million people made in the image of God. Three million people loved by God. Three million people, every life from an embryo to a 120-year-old person in a nursing home. Every single one of them of infinite value because of the one whose image they bear, the Lord who is infinitely valuable. What would it look like to take their burdens and shoulder them for St. Louis, for your region? What would it look like to intercede, to cry out to to God for a a region that is filled with uh, socioeconomic disparities and injustice and violence and cruelty, a city that is filling up with refugees from other parts of the world who frankly have had it worse? What would it look like to cry out to God, to intercede for St. Louis through your prayers? Are you praying for your neighbors? Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Are you praying for your neighborhood? Are you praying for your colleagues and associates, for structural changes in our region, for for justice for the oppressed, for people who are imprisoned, for those in authority? In John 15, Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to bear fruit, fruit that will last, so that whatever you ask my Father in my name, he will give to you. Jesus saying, the purpose I chose you before creation, the reason I rescued you, is so that you would bear fruit by praying to the Father in my name for those around you, for your city, for your region, for your friends, for your neighbors, the people you love, and for the people you can't stand. The early Christian disciples in Acts 1, it says that they all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. A culture in the early church of people crying out to God together in all their diversity. Paul writes, rejoice always and pray continuously in 1 Thessalonians. He tells the Colossians, devote yourselves to prayer. He tells the Romans, be faithful in prayer. Who do we pray for? Jesus says, Luke 6. Pray for those who mistreat you, the boss who treats you poorly, the spouse who drives you nuts, the kids who disrespect you, the parents who mistreat you, uh, to pray for everybody. 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul writes, I urge then, first of all, top priority, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people 
for kings and for all those in authority. This is good, he writes, and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. A heart for your city, a readiness to stand in that gap as the intercessor for St. Louis. God is saying, that is why I put you here. That is your calling. That's where I'm taking you is I am taking St. Louis on a journey to see lives set free and once barren land bear fruit, and you have an essential part of that. I am calling you to cry out to me on their behalf. S.D. Gordon in the early 20th century spoke of the Christians who have the biggest impact on the growth of God's kingdom on earth. Who are the most powerful servants of God? He says this. He says, they have a holy secret service. We do not know who these people are, though sometimes shrewd guesses may be made. He writes, I often think that sometimes we pass some plain-looking woman quietly slipping out of the church, gown been turned two or three times, bonnet been fixed over more than once, hands that have not known much of the softening of gloves. And we hardly give her a passing thought and do not know nor guess that perhaps she is the one who is doing far more for her church and for the world and for God than a hundred who would claim more attention and thought because she prays, truly prays, as the Spirit of God inspires and guides. As priests, we intercede for our city through our prayers, and yet we also intercede with our lives. The year 260 AD was a year in which Christianity in the Roman Empire and in all the world was still very much a small minority religion, and it was still very much persecuted. And yet, the year 260 was a year that brought plague to much of the Roman world. At its height, the epidemic is estimated to have been killing 5,000 Romans a day just in the city of Rome, and frankly, there were other cities that had it worse. Among its victims were not one but two Roman emperors who died. The effects were extreme everywhere. As much as two-thirds of the population of Alexandria, Egypt, passed away. That was the second largest city in the Mediterranean. Dionysius of Alexandria described it. He said the pagans... At the first onset of the disease, pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead. They treated unburied corpses as if they were dirt, hoping thereby to avert the spread and contagion of this fatal disease. But do as they might, they found it difficult to escape. There was no love when plague threatened. Centuries earlier, Thucydides described the plagues that hit the city of Athens He wrote this, he said, they died with no one to look after them. Indeed, there were many houses in which all the inhabitants perished through lack of any attention. The bodies of the dying were heaped on top of one another. Half-dead creatures could be seen staggering about the streets or flocking around the fountains in their desire for water. The temples in which they took up their quarters were full of dead bodies of people who had died inside of them, for the catastrophe was so overwhelming that men, not knowing what would happen next to them, became indifferent to every rule of religion and of law. No fear of God or law of man had any restraining influence. And as for the gods, 
It seemed to be the same thing whether one worshipped them or not when one saw the good and the bad dying together indiscriminately. Historian Rodney Stark comments that those who had means would flee the city. When the Antonine Plague hit Rome, the famous classical physician Galen got out of town quickly. He retired to a country estate in Asia Minor until the danger receded. But historians record that the Christians stayed in the city with the dying. And at the height of the second and greatest epidemic around 260, Dionysius wrote a lengthy tribute to their heroic efforts, many of whom lost their lives caring for the sick. He writes this, he said, The Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need, and they ministered to them in Christ. And with them, they departed this life serenely joyful, for they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many in nursing and caring for others transferred their death to themselves and died in their place. The best lost their lives in this manner. Elders, deacons, Christian laymen won high commendation by dying in this manner, the result of great piety and strong faith. See, the Christians willingly exposed themselves to the disease. They allowed the virus to infect themselves in order to nurse those who were sick. They risked their lives, not only for other Christians, but for their pagan neighbors. They interceded for their city, not only with their prayers, but with their lives. And the pagans never forgot who it was who had loved them. Within 40 years, a tenth of the empire believed in Jesus, even though it was still illegal. And that was concentrated mostly in the cities where the plague had been strongest, um, Some of the cities by the year 300 were already majority Christian. And by mid-century, after Christianity had been legalized, though not yet an official religion, half, half of the population of the Roman Empire followed Christ. They captured the hearts of the empire. What will it look like to capture the hearts of St. Louis? But as we intercede with our prayers, as we place ourselves between them and God, speaking to God on their behalf, God, have mercy on my boss. God, have mercy on my neighbors. God, have mercy on refugees. And as we intercede with our lives, sacrificing our own health and perhaps our own life in order to be a blessing to St. Louis, how is it possible to do that? It's quite a challenge to take all of their burdens and throw them on yourself to be the priest to intercede. How can you do that? The only way it's possible, friends, is what Jesus describes here and what we see happened in Rome. Jesus is one that loves us and has freed us of our sins by his blood. It's just like in Rome. Jesus first captured the hearts of those handful of Christians in the cities, small minority that they were beaten up, they were were sometimes put to death, they were persecuted, they lost families, they lost lives, they lost homes, they lost businesses. But, But Jesus had captured their heart, and so then when their city needed them, they stepped up and offered love that none of the pagans had resources to offer. 
They loved their enemy. They had compassion on them. And because of that, the Christians who who had been freed from their sins by the blood of Jesus became willing to die for their pagan neighbors. They learned that from Jesus who did that for us. And that message, that good news, was stamped upon their life. The blood-bought loyalty of people freed from the burden of their sins, washed, forgiven, clothed, and set free. And the pagans remembered what they did. And it captured the hearts of the empire. Friends, only way it can work is if you've been freed. Not as a doctrinal statement. Most people who show up at a church on Sunday believe that Jesus is, is Lord. But on a personal level, have you been freed from the burden of your sins by the blood of Jesus? You say, Greg, I don't need to be freed. I'm not enslaved. But if I ask your spouse, if I ask your friends, if I ask your ex... They might tell me otherwise. I know I'm the biggest sinner in the room, but somebody here has to be the second biggest uh, because we're all broken. We are so much less than the best of humanity. We are so much less than what God intended in the beginning for us to be because we're all broken. We're all corrupt. We all have an inward selfishness, and even when we love other people, often it's because we need them, because we need their acceptance. That self-will that's always there, that self-interest, have you felt the shame of that? Have you felt the slavery of that? Have you felt what it's like to need washing? You say, I'm not dirty. But we're all dirty. You just look clean because you're surrounded by people maybe a little dirtier than you. But when you know your own heart, you know, Lord, I need washing. I need you to set me free. Have you been washed until you've been set free? You can't be a priest interceding for others because you're going to be caught up with your own needs in your own concerns, to him that loves us and has freed us of our sins by his blood. That's what Jesus did on the cross. He took your guilt, your shame, my guilt, and my shame, and I was carrying this massive burden, and it was enslaving me. And Jesus said, Greg, let me take that out of your hands. And Jesus carried that burden, my guilt and yours, my shame and yours, and he carried it to the cross And on the cross, he allowed it to crush him. Was one little kid once told me, Jesus took my spanking for me. It's substitutionary atonement. The penalty that I could never pay myself, Jesus did. He went to hell on the cross as the Father rejected him so that if you have Jesus, you will never face that judgment yourself. There's no double jeopardy with God. Once your sins have been dealt with, once your guilt has been atoned for, once your, your debt has been paid for, it is paid in full. Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. And there's no double jeopardy with God. Once, it, once that debt has been paid, it has been paid, and it will never be brought before you again. That's the power of the cross, the blood Uh, Leviticus 17, thinking of that whole sacrificial system in the Old Testament where if if you had defrauded your neighbor or had lustful thoughts or cheated on your wife or, or lied about something or stolen some money, you could then go to the temple. And the priest would come out and the priest would intercede for you. And you would, would, you know, lay or the priest would lay his hands on an animal and your guilt would symbolically be transferred. That burden taken off your shoulders and put on that lamb. And that lamb would be led out to slaughter and its throat would be cut and it would die in your place. And you would go free. 
All of those sacrifices, Leviticus 17 said, for it is the blood that makes atonement, that makes oneness between you and God, the blood of Jesus. All of those sacrifices were pointing to that one ultimate sacrifice, that one ultimate substitute who would stand in the gap for you as your priest. His blood would be spilled and would fall upon the earth and it would heal the earth and it would restore the land and it would bring reconciliation between you and God because your sin has been dealt with fully and finally and forever. To him that loves us and has freed us of our sins by his blood, if you have faith in Christ, friends, you have been freed. You no longer are chained to that burden. You don't carry it. Jesus carried it for you. You had a substitute who took the fall for you so that you could live. I've shared a bunch of times now you know, how my grandfather was a coal miner in the mountains of Virginia. And uh, I remember hearing a story a couple years back about a coal miner. There were two miners and there was a mining accident. And they were trapped deep down in the mine, and the chamber they were in was running out of oxygen, and it was filling up with gases, and they both had respirators, and they strapped on their respirators, and it became evident that one of their respirators was faulty. And as he began to pass out, he became unconscious, his friend was seated across from him, and his friend was a younger guy, he was single, he didn't have a wife, he didn't have kids, and he looked at his best friend who was dying right across from him. And he thought of his best friend's young wife, and he thought of their little baby and what it would be like for that little boy to be raised without a dad. And so he walked over and sat next to his friend, put his arm around his friend, and then he took off his respirator and put it on his friend. And his friend walked out of that mine alive, but at the cost of someone's self-sacrificial death. That's almost what Jesus did for you. If, imagine for a second that that was not his best friend. Imagine that was the guy who stole his wife. That's what Jesus did for you. The Bible says it's when we were his enemies that Christ died for us. He loved us. He loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood. If you have Jesus, all you have to do is say, Jesus, I receive you. Jesus, I welcome you. Jesus, I trust you to be my Savior, to forgive my sin. If you've been freed, it then frees you to love others. If, if Christ has been your priest, that will empower you as one who is loved, to go love generously as priests forever. John 1 says, yet to all who received Christ, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent or of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Jesus said, if you believe him who sent me, you have crossed over from death to life and will not be condemned. It is finished. It is redemption. It is the power to him that loved us and freed us of our sins by his blood means you're loved, friends. Notice how John uses the present tense. You were loved before the cross, and you were loved on the cross, and you will be loved forever, but John wants to impress upon you now by using the present tense is right now. Whatever suffering or pain or difficulty or challenges you are facing, whatever shame you feel or whatever you have done, 
right now, at this moment, with all of that, God is loving you more than anybody could ever love you. There is no additional love he could give. There's nothing you could do to get him to love you more. There's nothing you're going to do that's going to make him love you less. To him that loves us, present tense, right now, the biggest pair of arms in the universe are wrapped around you right now, holding you tight in its divine embrace to be Loved means that there's somebody who cares about you more than they care about themselves, somebody who would die for you and indeed has died for you, somebody who would give up their firstborn child to rescue you and indeed actually did that on the cross. It means that there's somebody who takes note of where you are and what you're doing, who knows your weakness and knows your struggles, but if they love you, they will never use those against you. The blood of God has washed you. If you are a Christian, Jesus saw that you needed loving, and he loved you, and he's loving you right now as he sees you still needing loving. He saw you in your weakness, in your frailty, in the blindness, in the addictions. He saw you with with plague, and it was a plague that you could not cure, and Jesus nursed you back to health at the cost of his own life. As a priest, Jesus intercedes for you day and night before the Father. How did John define the early Christians? Where were they going? Who were they? What was their purpose? They were priests. Jesus loved them. Jesus loved them. God had had compassion on them. It's the love of Jesus that washes us, gives us a new identity, a new purpose, a new direction, a new destination. The love of Jesus that turns a church inside out, outward faced for the sake of its region. At our denomination's General Assembly this last year, Tim Keller of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan uh, shared an illustration that I'm going to share with you. It was in 1955 that Billy Graham was invited to speak at Cambridge University in the UK by a small group of Christians who attended there. John Stott had been instrumental in arranging for Graham to speak, and almost immediately, letters to the editor started coming in to the Times of London, pouring essentially a message out like this. I'm sure that Graham is a nice man, but he's the wrong type of Christian, the sort that believes that the blood of Jesus is required for salvation. And we all know that sort of thing doesn't go over here. Further, I can't imagine what the fine young men and women from Oxford or from Cambridge can learn from a man like Billy Graham. Graham himself found the prospect of conducting a university mission at Cambridge University increasingly daunting. He said to Stott, he said, I'm deeply concerned. And in much thought about the mission, John, I I have never felt more inadequate and totally underprepared. As I think over the possibility for messages, I realize how shallow and weak my presentations are. When Graham arrived at Cambridge, John arranged for him to talk privately with C.S. Lewis, who was then a fellow at Magdalen College. And the three of them met in Lewis's rooms there and spent an hour or so together. Uh, Graham later admitted, I was afraid I would be intimidated by Lewis but I was relieved to find that he immediately put me at ease. But the British press didn't put him at ease. They were predicting that Cambridge students would cause a riot during the talks, just as they had years earlier when D.L. Moody had spoken there. 
Just the previous year, when Graham had first visited the UK, there were questions asked in Parliament as to whether he should be allowed the land in Great Britain. Newspapers were against his visit. The church leaders who had given him an invitation had backed down, and the Archbishop of Canterbury told Graham that he wasn't welcome over here. The American ambassador warned him not to come, and this time around, Graham was warned to expect the worst at Cambridge. Britain's elite didn't want to be told about blood sacrifices and some perceived need for salvation by a poorly educated American preacher with a southern drawl. It's worried Graham. So he set about creating erudite, sophisticated, scholarly lessons. Uh, He talked about Heidegger and Kierkegaard and philosophy, about rational basis for faith and intellectual reasons for belief in a God. Uh, They were totally different messages from anything Graham had ever preached before. And after the first night and then the second night, absolutely nothing happened. So finally, on Wednesday night, Graham, frustrated, set aside his prepared remarks, just threw him aside and said, let me tell you what I know about the cross of Jesus Christ. Dick Lucas was in the room that night and shares his eyewitness account. He writes this, I'll never forget that night. I was in the totally packed chancel, sitting on the floor with the Regis Professor of Divinity sitting on one leg and the chaplain of a college who was a future bishop on the other Both of these were very good men, but completely against the idea that you needed salvation from sin by the blood of Jesus Christ. So dear Billy got up that night, and he began at Genesis and went right through the whole Bible, and he talked about every single sacrifice you can imagine. The blood was just flowing all over the place, everywhere, for three quarters of an hour. And both my neighbors were terribly embarrassed by this crude proclamation of the blood of Jesus. It was everything they disliked and everything they dreaded about religion. But at the end of the sermon, he writes, Billy Graham dismissed the audience, but invited anybody who wanted to stay behind and make a commitment to Christ to stay. And that night... To everyone's shock, 400 young men and women stood behind. Decades later, Christian leaders around the world still look back on that Wednesday night in Great St. Mary's Church, Cambridge, as the event that forever changed their lives and set their future course of service to Christ as priests to the world. Scholars look back on that 45 minutes as the 45-minute-long moment that forever changed the religious landscape of Great Britain. The impact was such that Graham was later dined by the Queen. He was interviewed by David Frost for the BBC. He appeared on the pages of the national press, only this time with positive stories. Christians found their non-Christian friends asking them if they were going to go see Graham. Prime Minister Winston Churchill summoned him to Number 10 Downing Street for tea. One historian wrote this. He said, perhaps the greatest legacy is that Billy Graham loved the British people. All he did was set aside his prepared remarks and spend 45 minutes explaining to them about the blood of Jesus that can free you from sin. It's the power of the blood of Christ to turn us inside out as intercessors for St. Louis. This is where God is taking us as a church. Intercessors for St. Louis and intercessors for the world to intercede 
with our prayers, to intercede with our lives, to intercede with the blood of Christ that washes us and frees us from sin. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for the blood of Christ that washes us and makes us free. I give you thanks, Father, and I consecrate to you the elements on this table, this bread and this cup, Lord, that you would minister your gospel to us. We give you thanks in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Hey, kids. There you go. Fine mom, fine dad, parent, guardian, other responsible adult. Friends, the Lord be with you. And also with you. And lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. And let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is good and right to give him thanks and praise because this is where he shows us what he did for us. And God the Father gave up his son to, have, to gain the one thing that he wanted most, which is you. He did it because he loved you and he loves you now. If you're not yet a Christian or you're not ready to come to Jesus uh, in this meal, uh, don't feel pressured and don't do anything that's not true to where you are right now. We look for the day when you will be able to come, and you're welcome to just pass by without taking the elements. But you don't have to be a member of this church or this denomination. It's the Lord's table. It belongs to the Lord. And if you're one who belongs to the Lord, and this is for you. For it was on that night in which he was betrayed that the Lord Jesus himself took the bread. Having given thanks, he, he broke it. He gave it to his disciples, and he said, Take this and eat. This is my body. It is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, the Lord Jesus took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Friends, great is the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Therefore, let us keep the feast.